You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to welcome a new sponsor to SpyCast, Hunt a Killer. Thank you for joining the SpyCast family. And you'll be hearing more about this later on, but first, let's meet our guests. So we're joined today by Keith Melton and Bob Wallace. Keith Melton is an intelligence historian and author of several books, including Ultimate Spy, Inside the Secret World of Espionage. He began collecting espionage artifacts several decades ago and amassed one of, if not the largest collection of spy paraphernalia in the world, much of which you'll be able to see starting next year in the new Spy Museum. Keith is also a member of the International Spy Museum's Governing Board. Bob Wallace is the former director of the Central Intelligence Agency's Office of Technical Services, the CIA version of James Bond's Q. Bob is a member of the International Spy Museum's Advisory Board, and he and Keith have previously co-authored four books, including Spycraft, The Secret History of the CIA's Spy Techs, From Communism to Al-Qaeda, The Official CIA Manual of Trickery and Deception, Spy Sites of New York City, and Spy Sites of Philadelphia. Now, if you are out there deciding you want to create the best intelligence-related library you possibly can. A book you have to have in that library is Spycraft, The Secret History of the CIA Spy Text. That is a must-have book if you think you're going to have any kind of respectable intelligence library. Their newest book is Spy Sites of Washington, D.C., and Keith and Bob, I'd like to welcome you to SpyCast, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here today. Thank you. Thank you, Vince. So you've done two other Spy Sites books in New York and Philadelphia, but D.C. is Spy Central. So my question is, what took you so long? Why, why, why are we only now seeing this book when it, maybe you would think it would be the first one you'd look at? The reason we did the first two books uh, had to do with a traveling spy exhibit that I believe perhaps the International Spy Museum was a part of. Uh, this exhibit opened in New York in 2012, and then moved to Philadelphia a year later. So I will take full credit for the idea that Keith suggested to me, which was, hey, you know, why don't we do a, a little book about sites in these two cities, and we can have that available for people who come to see the exhibit, and uh, then they perhaps would also like to see some places in the city uh, that they could visit as, as part of that. Well, we're happy you finally brought it to D.C., and, and the book is uh, recently released, but it's already a nonfiction bestseller for the Washington Post, uh, and it's appeared on that list, and it's moving up 
the charts. So maybe after this podcast, we can kind of kick it up a little bit higher. Um, th- this is a fascinating book, and I want to ask how difficult must it have been to choose just the sites you did? Because there has to be just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of places in Washington, D.C. that you could have chosen as being representative in this book. There are more spies in Washington, D.C. now than at any point in history, and you could have probably made that same statement decades ago. The challenge is, because it is a clandestine world, is to identify specific locations. We weren't looking at someone lived on Meriwether Street. We needed a house address. We needed an apartment number. And years ago, we started building a library of sites. We're now over about a 1,000 sites in the area, and that just scratches the surface. Mm-hmm. So part of what we did is try to select a variety of sites that would be of interest to lots of people. So where spies lived, where they died, where they ate, where they made love, where they had secret meetings, so that it's... Uh, it's kind of a history of the city, but it's a history of espionage at the same time. And the book is great. It just doesn't deal with Cold War espionage. It goes back to the very beginning of the United States for places that I'm sure a lot of D.C. visitors may have gone to and not realized they were in the middle of something so deeply embedded in American espionage. And one of the first ones is the home of George Washington himself, Mount Vernon. I mean, just about every field trip that comes to the Washington, D.C. area schleps down you know, the highway a little bit to Mount Vernon. But the realization may not be that Washington himself was our first spy master, and there's so much in his history that can be brought out by just looking at Mount Vernon itself. It could be argued that the Revolutionary War uh, was won because of George Washington's skill at running spy operations. Uh, I get primarily at the time, since Washington was not established until 1790, Uh, But during 1776 to 1783, New York and Philadelphia were real centers of both the revolution, but also the spy centers of the nation at that time. Well, it's interesting that that Washington, from a military standpoint, during the French and Indian War, doesn't necessarily have the greatest record. He's kind of seen as somebody that didn't necessarily have the best tactical and strategic understanding. But it was really the French and Indian War that brought him to the point where he started understanding intelligence because the British didn't do a great job of intelligence during the French and Indian War. Is that where Washington kind of got his first indication of how important intelligence would be? Well, he, he certainly was a better strategist than he was a tactician. And at some point in his, his evolution as a commander, he came to appreciate the value of intelligence. And the foundational document of the Central Intelligence Agency is the, the fact that he said that endeavors, promising to endeavors, no, no matter how favorable they appear, may often be won or lost because of intelligence. And he understood not only the necessity to have spies, but to develop ways to communicate with them. And he was picking his own secret inks, mm-hmm. and he was heading separate ledgers for agents. Uh, in fact, some of the secret inks, we still cannot replicate some of the formulas. So he not understood, not only understood the, the necessity of it, but he was detailed in working on the tradecraft to make it happen. And well, that's remarkable in a national leader. Well, tradecraft is interesting because some of the stuff that they did, we would recognize today and think of as more modern tradecraft, like disinformation campaigns. And like you did the spy sites of Philadelphia, but 
Philadelphia is a great example of where something we would think of as a Cold War remnant, the left behind system, was something that Washington pulled out 240 years ago of saying that, you know, we're going to lose Philadelphia to the British. Let's figure out a way to put people in place to continue on these operations. One of the great advantages that Washington had, I think that is sometimes not well recognized, uh, the men around him, John Jay, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, uh, these were all practitioners of intelligence as well. They had intelligence minds. They, they understood the value of ciphers, of co- secret communications, of agents. I also like to say that Washington had a great advantage that modern intelligence agencies in the United States do not have, and that is he had no oversight. <laughs> yes. I guess when you, when you have command of everything, you can basically do whatever you want. Now, we talked about a lot of men, but if we skip ahead to the War of 1812, a story that a lot of school kids may remember is Dolly Madison saving the portrait of Washington from the White House before it was burned down by the British. What may that may not know is that Dolly Madison actually held an OP, an observation post, when everybody else had left and run away. She still sat there, essentially waiting, doing early form of imagery intelligence against the, the British oncoming uh, forces. Dolly Madison uh, positioned herself on the roof of the White House, and in those days, uh, aerial surveillance was done by climbing up to the highest point possible and looking. And uh, Dolly Madison, it is reported, uh, saw you know, the British troops moving at some distance from the White House, maybe up to uh, a couple of miles, two, two three miles, and uh, she maintained that position and uh, reported what she saw to the uh, to the American uh, commanders until she was really forced to forced to leave just before the British got to the White House grounds and and attacked the White House. Well, and at that point, everybody else had left already. All the all the men had run away, and Madison Dolly was still there, uh, holding strong in her OP. Well, that uh, maybe. True. <laughs> for, for what we know, um, what, one thing I found also interesting is the uh, moving into the Civil War. A lot of people focus on the firing on Fort Sumter as the beginning of the war, and certainly that was, but it's not the beginning of the Espionage War because the Civil War rebel spies began spying even before the war itself kicked off. And one of them was actually a member of the U.S. War Department. So if you go over to where the War Department building was, was the 17 F Street Northwest, you have a man named Tappan Thomas Jordan, who was a quartermaster, and was spying on the U.S. military even before the South seceded. The uh, Civil War, a uh, fascinating experience for for spies because... Uh, until until the uh, war actually broke out, uh, Washington was a mixture of Southern sympathizers and North, Northern abolitionists, uh, married to each other, friends with each other, entertained each other. Uh, one of the uh, principal Confederate spies or Southern sympathizers, uh, Rose Greenhow, was a frequent guest of the president. At the, at the White House, and Rose Greenhow made 
no, uh, did not hide at all her sympathy for the Southern cause, both before and after the war. And it was known by by Southern sympathizers, Southern spies, that if they wanted to get information to the the Confederate army, to the Confederate government, they could just go to Rose Greenhouse home, which is uh, where in the same area that the St. Regis Hotel is currently located, just up on 16th Street from the White House. What I also found interesting was in the area that is modern-day Fort McNair, which people may know, people who are listening may actually be stationed at Fort McNair, was a uh, an event that took place that people may think, again, as a Cold War remnant, this idea of uh, loyalty oaths and loyalty investigations that kind of really sounded a whole lot like McCarthyism to me because the House had a committee to investigate loyalty to the Union and people who were actually living in the North but might actually be spying for the South and just like you would say HUAC later on, they saw spies everywhere um, and you actually tell the story about the White House gardener being fired for talking badly about the Union Army. I mean if you're going to fire the White House gardener seems like you're kind of somewhat overbearing in the, where you see spies. So I guess my question is, and it's a broader question, just like with McCarthyism, there was a lot of hysteria, but there were actually Soviet spies in the United States. There seemed like a lot of hysteria, too. How much was Washington infested with Southern spies during this time? Well, I think that, as Bob mentioned, it, it, the city was intertwined. It was hard to separate. You had brothers with competing loyalties. You had classes of young military officers out of West Point with there were brothers at arm now being brothers in, in conflict. You had families ripped apart. Uh, but if anything, Washington was more pro-Southern mm-hmm. than it was pro, pro-Union. And the difficulty was, is how do you possibly fight a, fight a war? Kind of a modern context, uh, an example would be, today we're asking questions. Should we be looking at a person's stated loyalties and their public postings on the internet right. and their comments if if they're saying those things should we allow them in the United States so to me it's nothing more than 150 years has passed and we're saying if you're going to work at the White House as a gardener and bad math the president well maybe you don't need to you need to right. move south so <laughs> perhaps some similarities that uh, were in absence of other facts oral statements are very important well, I mean, people even today don't quite realize that Washington D.C. is not in the North. Yes. I mean, my my mom <laughs> lives in Miami, and she my sister lives in Massachusetts, and she thinks our weather is the same. And I'm like, Mom, <laughs> we're, we're six hours south of Massachusetts. We're we're ten seconds north of Virginia. Uh, so yeah, there, there's a lot of misunderstanding of where Washington actually is in the broader scheme of things. I want to ask you a little bit, one more Civil War question uh, focused on events that may seem much more modern than you would normally consider during the Civil War. And this is a hotel that doesn't exist anymore. It was called the National Hotel, uh, right down the street from where we are right now, Pennsylvania Avenue and 6th Street Northwest. And it was interesting to hear that this was essentially one of the centers of Civil War bio-warfare, biological warfare during this time, where a... Uh, high-level Confederate intelligence officers in Canada attempted to wage bio-warfare against the United States. Uh, Indeed, this uh, was one of those unexpected surprises for me as we were doing the book. 
uh, perhaps Civil War buff, Civil War scholars uh, know know this story well. It, w- it was not one that uh, I, I was uh, aware of. I, particularly fascinating on this was th- this idea that we would infect blankets or other clothing with uh, whatever viruses. I think smallpox was was one of the viruses that was uh, one of the targets was the president himself and uh, apparently the uh, the uh, man who was the spy who was assembling these contaminated clothing uh, actually decided that it wasn't proper to go after the president of the United States and so he chose not to deliver the uh, p- particular clothing that would have been intended for Abraham Lincoln, uh, it uh, always struck me as as kind of interesting. It was kind of the f- the first uh, time, maybe in the United States, that we decided assassination was not a proper well, right, pro- proper role of intelligence. Right before the man who also lived in the National Hotel during that time decided to actually assassinate the president. That's also correct. Where John Wilkes Booth lived during the time, uh, it seems like a adequate, and I'm using that word on purpose, an adequate counterintelligence operation, if the Union had one, would realize the National Hotel on 6th and Pennsylvania in Washington, D.C., was this hotbed of Confederate sympathizers. Well, I think one of the problems you had was that, that we were unprepared for an intelligence war because there was no established formal intelligence or counterintelligence services at the time. We had ad hoc groups of, you had Alan Pinkerton, the, the famous who, who aided Lincoln during his first inauguration was running his own networks and providing counterintelligence. You had military units, you had the provost marshal that were trying to provide security and run agents, but there was no central controlling organization. There was no equivalent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation that was charged with that mission. And so efforts were somewhat lackadaisical. At times they were arresting each other's spies because they really weren't sure where the loyalties were. But it was uh, it shows what happens when you're unprepared. Well, so, I would add to that, Keith, I, I think it's instructive that these attempts uh, at, uh, on Lincoln uh-huh. and even the assassination on Lincoln, as far as we know, was not planned, carried out, or directed by the Confederate government. These, these were individuals with Confederate... Uh, sympathies, uh, who thought that doing this would affect the cause of the war, but uh, at least uh, I, I'm not aware of, of that this that this was directed from Richmond. Well, the the final April assassination, yes, but there had been a plot and plan in late 1864 in the spring of 1865, in which there was an active network that was to kidnap. Lincoln, spirit him into Virginia, and then use him as hostage and negotiate for a negotiated peace. That plot fell apart, and it is but it is the remnants of that plot that actually carried out the assassination in April, where John Wilkes Booth was misguided, and he believed that the death of Lincoln would bring about more unrest and would be an aid to the Confederacy. And ironically, it actually had just the opposite effect because Lincoln was a far more soothing, calming figure who would have been probably much more lenient in the treatment of the South 
ultimately then his vice president was when he took over. You talk about the the unpreparedness of the United States government, United States military, for dealing with intelligence operations during the war. A couple of decades later, uh, if anyone's been near the White House lately, a building, if you're staring at the White House, the building directly to the right, used to be called the OEOB, now it's called the Dwight Eisenhower Executive Office Building. But this is the first home for U.S. military intelligence uh, that happens in the 1880s. And it's interesting because we talk about the CIA as being the first permanent peacetime intelligence agency, but when it ends up being G2 predates the CIA by six decades, but there's a different function there. Can talk a little bit about that. My sense, uh, understanding is that that was uh, focused almost exclusively on military-type intelligence. Uh, I would characterize it as as tactical military intelligence more than strategic thinking, which uh, the Central Intelligence Agency uh, was was really formed around the concept that we need a strategic uh, intelligence capability that covers not only military but also political, economic, and, and technical matters. Uh, there was also in parallel to what the military was doing out of the State Department. They, there were intelligence operations being run by the State Department, uh, collection uh, uh, activities of, about various foreign, uh, foreign countries. In, in fact, you know, this goes back to the Civil War when the uh, Secretary of State Seward had his own intelligence network that was operating in Europe through the Civil War. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, people know the name because of the purchase of Alaska or the fact he was Secretary of State. People don't necessarily realize he was a spy master himself and running operations, you know, bribing mail carriers and listening to telegraph operators, uh, doing information operations overseas. And planning stories in in the uh, major, major newspaper in Belgium. It would be as if a foreign government had recruited the uh, editor of the Washington Post and was uh, having articles run. Seward was successful in doing that in Belgium. Or if a foreign government had a television channel here in the United States that had... (laughs) Well, we were also observing Europe in this this period, and we saw the use of codes and ciphers and their their importance in the Franco-Prussian War. We saw advances in European military. So it was necessary to have a military intelligence service to try to keep the U.S. somewhat prepared, because we use codes and ciphers, State Department used codes and ciphers, countries around the world understood you needed to communicate secretly. The advancement of the undersea cable, Mm -hmm. you had now communications and early form of the internet was developing, but it all depended on the ability to communicate secretly. So we understood some of the principles, we just didn't effectively realize that we needed a central organization to control it, and it took us decades before we finally realized that. There are times when a new product comes out that makes me mad. Mad because it's so cool I'm annoyed I didn't think of it first. So I wanted to take a second to tell you guys about this new subscription box service called Hunt a Killer. Maybe you've heard about it. People are obsessed. Hunt a Killer sends a package to your home each month full of creepy correspondence from their killer curator. He's a little bit like Hannibal Lecter, constantly messing with your head, and he's got a mystery for you to solve. 
So every month you'll receive new clues, letters, articles, objects, tools, all adding to an ongoing murder mystery. And it's up to you to solve it, along with the thousands of other members all working together in their online communities. If you want a serious challenge, you can try and solve it yourself or with a group of friends or family. But what's cool is that there is an online community of people like you all trying to work to solve the crime. It's a perfect thing for an armchair detective or a budding intel analyst looking to put their sleuthing skills to the test. You can join by logging on to huntakiller.com, H-U-N-T-A-K-I-L-L-E-R.com, and applying for membership. Hunt a Killer is growing so fast that they have to limit new members to 500 a week. Once you apply and you're approved for membership, you'll receive a private link to subscribe. Then a package arrives on your doorstep each month. Waiting is the hardest part. They've been featured in BuzzFeed, Fast Company, and Bustle. Hunter Killer is forming a cult-like community of web sleuths and amateur detectives. If you love poring over creepy codes, ciphers, and clues, Hunter Killer is simply perfect. And if it's not for you, I have a feeling you know at least one person that would love to receive this as a gift. I cannot recommend this membership enough. When the box first came to the office, there was a collective, ooh, awesome, from everyone who works here. We're a bunch of nerdy people just like you. I continue to be annoyed. That I didn't think of it first. Just to help support our show, Hunter Killer has offered a 10% discount for our listeners, which is tracked to this message. So use the code SPYCAST and get 10% off. That's SPYCAST for 10% off at HunterKiller.com. So as we're recording this, the day we are doing this is the 100th anniversary of the United States entry into the First World War. But... A hundred years ago, today, a little bit before that, uh, before the United States got involved, there was another plot here in Washington, D.C. to use biological weapons against the United States. And this is called the Mule Sabotage Plot. Happened right up the street, 33rd Street Northwest, where a German spy tried to use bioweapons against the United States. Can you talk a little bit about that? The uh, concept was that uh, a, a major component of U.S. aid to the war in Europe, to the Allied, the, the French and German, uh, the French and uh, British side of the war, uh, were, were transportation vehicles. And in those days, transportation vehicles were called mules. <laughs> and so, uh, so America was in shipping uh, boatloads of mule, uh, shiploads of mules to the front in Europe. And so the concept on this biological warfare was not aimed necessarily at people, but it was, was aimed at animals and the, the kind of animals that would be critical to the logistics mm-hmm. of supporting the American, uh, American forces being deployed. So I, I, I laughed out loud when I read it was one single German spy before we entered the war. Uh, he eventually worked his way back to Europe after the war and talk about karma being a bitch, he died of the Spanish flu during the epidemic. Yes. Uh, <laughs> if, I, if I could jump back, you know, 60 years, I, a similar situation is with Rose Greenhow that I previously mentioned because Rose Greenhow uh, continued uh, her operations on behalf of the Confederates during the Civil War was eventually uh, arrested uh, or imprisoned and uh, uh, e- either escaped or, or somehow was, was let out of prison, went to Europe. And in Europe, uh, she wrote uh, a book that uh, whose funds 
she raised, and those those funds were to support the Confederate cause. So in 1864, Rose Greenhow got on a ship, came back uh, to the Confederacy, but just before they uh, landed, uh, the ship ran a, ran aground. And so now we have a shipwreck. Uh, Rose, Rose Greenhow uh, was uh, supposed to uh, get out of the ship onto, onto a rescue, but, but in the course of doing that, uh, she fell in the water. All of the gold that she had collected from the sale of her book had been secreted, sewn in her petticoats. And her the weight of the gold in her petticoats pulled her under the water, and she drowned. That should be, uh, there should be a book of karmic endings for, for spies who deserved it coming out next. You guys can think about doing that one. Uh, another main attraction for people that visit Washington, D.C. now is the Vietnam Memorial. It's you know, the gorgeous wall with all the names of the fallen during Vietnam. The current site of that memorial used to be a building called the Munitions Building, which was during the interwar period and the beginning of World War II was home of the SIS. And this is not the British SIS. This is, in fact, the Signals Intelligence Service, uh, which now has been morphed into uh, our wonderful friends up at Fort Meade, the NSA. But this is a time when it, it pretty influential. I mean, a lot of people have heard of Alan Turing. You know, if they've seen Imitation Game, understand Benedict Gumberbatch played him in that movie. But an American mathematician, a man named William Friedman, was arguably as important to code breaking during that time, or maybe even more, uh, and he was set up there at, our, at the munitions building. Talk a little about Friedman's role in breaking purple, uh, and then the shift in 1942 to Arlington Hall, which gets all the credit. Most people don't realize when they're looking at the Vietnam War Memorial, they're standing in the place where purple was broken. Well, William Friedman is considered the, the father of the National Security Agency, and he and his wife had, in the late teens, World War One, just after, had a think tank at, in, a, in, a, in a what beautiful estate called Riverbank, and they published a series of publications, the Riverbank publications, that addressed principles essentially of covert communications, specifically in ciphers and secret writings. Their one manual they wrote, the production and detection of secret writing, for decades was the oldest classified document still in the National Archives. By the way, we have his signed yeah. copy of that is now in, in, our, in our collection here. But they understood the basic principles. The biggest change, the, 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 the sea change, was all ciphers prior to that time had been the function of people's minds. And so a human would think of a way to disguise or, or change or alter letters in an alphabet or a communication in a way that you could reverse that and, and understand it. But essentially in 1915, there were the first efforts at electromechanical cipher machines. This, and the first machine was known as a Hebron machine. Once this came into play, then it no longer became possible, even for very smart people, to sit down and break a cipher because the permutations with the electromechanical rotors were too great. 
you advanced a few years later and you saw the 1925 Walter Scherbius and the development of the Enigma cipher. So the Friedmans in their work were kind of the mathematical underpinnings. Uh, in the late 1930s, the two competing crypto systems were the, the Enigma systems of Germany and their allies, Japan, who had a different system based on stepping switches that turned out to be for the diplomatic cipher was, was called purple. And the breaking of that system was one of the signature mathematical accomplishments of the, of the generation. Uh, and the fact that we could, at the conclusion, we had the ability to read the Japanese ciphers, the diplomatic cipher, not the military cipher, faster than the Japanese themselves at the embassy. Yeah. And when we were able to understand that a military action was imminent, that was heard here in Washington sooner than probably the Japanese ambassador. I guess the key message was east wind rain mm -hmm. was transmitted. The problem was that we didn't have a good way to communicate that out to the island to Admiral Kimmel or General Short, who were essentially caught unprepared. But uh, when we understood that the Japanese were breaking apart their cipher machine, burning code books, and you could see the smoke coming out of the chimney, it was an ominous signal to those here in Washington that uh, a break in diplomatic relations was inevitable. I want to ask you about the, the breaking of purple because a lot of people have argued that breaking purple was actually more difficult and more of a, a cryptographic feat than the breaking of Enigma, mainly because no one had ever seen, I think no one still has ever seen, an intact purple machine. I mean, we now, we just seen pieces of it because they broke them all up at the end of the war. And the people at Bletchley Park, again, no offense to our British friends, they had fully functioning Enigma machines they were able to play with and reverse engineer. It was a much different problem because because we had never seen the machine. That's the, the genius of Friedman is somehow they conceived a, a, a solution to a problem that they had never could never imagine. They said, what could possibly do this? And they used the concept of the telephone stepping switches. But it's, it's difficult for the mind to conceive the problem. Enigma, because the poles, the, the, the Enigma machine in which we are blessed to have one on display and two more coming to the to the uh, to the collection for the new museum uh, had been commercially available in 1925 and it was sold from 1925 to 30 what made it exceptional was the element of secrecy even if you lost an enigma machine you couldn't necessarily break a cipher for a message the next day when someone else had sent because the key was the settings, the initial, the initial string of letters that you sent, and the setting of the rotors. And the, each rotor, three rotors, some machines had four. It had 26 different settings. And with the way they alternated and incremented the rotors, it was a devilishly complex. But we could see the machine. So I agree with your premise that, that ultimately, especially initially, breaking purple was a far more significant accomplishment, though it still didn't give us the Japanese military right. ciphers. We're, we're in a period currently right now where there's a lot of conversation about Russian spies inside the government, about people in highly placed positions within the White House who may have contacts 
with the Russians, whether you believe that or not, there is precedent for this, and you have that in the book, where a U- member of the U.S. House of Representatives named Samuel Dickstein was, in fact, a Soviet spy. Uh, you know, this is a member of the U.S. House of Representatives who was not just kind of a spy, he had a code name, you know, he was dimed out in Venona, he was doing all things, and now, luckily, he wasn't very good at it, but can you talk <laughs> a little bit about him? And, I mean, I think people would be amazed to know that, you know, people talk all the time about if, if Republicans are traitors or Democrats are traitors. This literally was somebody who was fine for the Soviets. Now, to my knowledge, this is the only case of a confirmed congressman, elected representative, being a spy for a foreign country. My speculation is it's not the only yeah. one. It's just the one we happen to know about. So Representative Congressman Dickstein was uh, recruited in 1937, and he was such a uh, poor agent that the uh, Russians or the Soviets fired him in 1940, uh, or at least uh, they uh, dropped, dropped contact with him at the time. But uh, during the uh, three years he, he was, uh, uh, had a code name, encrypted, they, uh, the, the Russians... The Soviets communicated back and forth with their uh, handlers here from uh, Moscow Center about tasking uh, for Dickstein, about how Dickstein was responding to that. Of note, in my mind, about Dickstein is almost less his spying than the fact that he was the one of the founders of the House Un-American <laughs> Activities <laughs> Committee. <laughs> A committee that was designed to root out spies in in the government, and then be uh, got, received notoriety in the late forties and the early fifties. Did he also the, co-sponsor a bill to like ban the Communist Party in the United uh, States? Yes, that was that was another one of his uh, pieces <laughs> of legislation. Now, whether he did this under direction of the his handlers are, is is unknown. But uh, Congressman Dickstein uh, retired in nineteen forty-five from Congress. Uh, became a judge, a respected judge in New York, and uh, died without his spying, his espionage ever being known. In fact, it was only revealed when the Venona transcripts were decrypted and, and released. And what was his code name? Crook. Such a perfect the, the, the Soviets had somewhat of a sense yeah, of humor, yeah. and it showed a bit of the disregard they, they had for him. I want to ask you, actually, about Venona, because it wasn't that no one knew he was a spy. It's just that when Venona in 95 was released, that's when he publicly was acknowledged that he was a spy, because people knew he was a spy back when, during the time period, he was alive. People who had access right. to the Venona materials at, at some time, I think it was in the uh, maybe late 50s or early 60s, when... Uh, these were very difficult decryptions. Of, of the, in fact, uh, today I think uh, less than 25% of the Venona uh, intercepts have actually been uh, been decrypted. So uh, there's a lot of material that we that we still don't know. Uh, but he, along with uh, some other you know, fairly fairly well known, such as uh, Alger Hiss. Uh, Spies were unmasked by the by the Venona transcripts, but before they were released publicly, they were ex- exceedingly close held, held by order of, of of the president. President Truman 
President Eisenhower, subsequent presidents. Yeah, all the way up through Clinton, who finally yes. classified them. So a, a couple of years ago, the, the U.S. Open Golf Tournament uh, was held up here in the D.C. area. Uh, and my parents came up. They're big golf aficionados. They went to the tournament. And as we were walking through, I went one day with them. I turned over and I said, you know, during World War II, this was a pretty pretty cool place. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, this is this is Congressional Country Club. That during World War II, this wasn't a golf course. T- For people that have been there, this is one of the most important <laughs> training facilities in the world at the time. You talk, what, what happened at Congressional Country Club in the 1940s? Well, the, 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 the newly founded OSS, which was founded in the spring of, eight, of 1942, took over uh, essentially a British model where the British combined special operations, covert action, with intelligence collection. But we're starting from scratch. And drawing from a military organization, they essentially wanted to train Americans to go fight a clandestine war. And essentially, in its earliest definitions, it was aiding partisan groups to provide armed and organized resistance in Europe because Europe had been overrun by the Germans. So our earliest efforts were to take young American boys and to teach them the skills of covert warfare. We had uh, an early version of Bob Wallace, a Q, who was there designing designing gadgets, and part of their research laboratories were there at the country club, in the basement of the country. Stanley Lovell. Stanley Lovell. And he was famous for saying, when he looked for gadgets that were needed, he said... Well, what do real American boys like to do? Well, they like to throw baseballs. Well, let's design a Beano. And a Beano was an early impact grenade as opposed to a timed grenade that you'd throw. It would self-arm after 10 feet, and it would explode only when it contacted with something. So if you exploded in a t- if you threw it in a tank, it'd only go off when it hit the tank. And that's where they, they did the training. They also trained at some of the national parks around the Washington area. But this was the laboratory that they developed. And it was done jointly between the OSRD, Office of Scientific Research and Development, that reported to the White House, and then to the OSS. So Lovell wore two hats. And the U.S. put into place something that would ultimately help us win the Cold War. And it was the idea that there would be a three-legged stool that would support the efforts. It would be industry, it would be academia, and it would be the intelligence services. And it would be that combination where intelligence services would provide the guidance, would say, this is the target, this is what we want to accomplish, and they would make a contract with either an industrial uh, manufacturer or an, a university to research and find out what we need to do. And we used that successfully during World War II and certainly to the great success during the Cold War. So all of this started at that point. One of the instructors at this training camp was a man named William Fairbairn, who was a, a British man who... You may have heard the name Fairbairn as the knife that he designed. Uh, this is a fascinating life, this guy, and he brought these ideas to the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about who he was uh, and why we should continue to pay attention to the kind of uh, fighting skills he developed? Well, Fairburn was a captain 
before the war in the Shanghai Volunteer Militia, which was a police force, and his partner was another captain named Bill Sykes. And Sykes and Fairburn, they headed the flying squad of the Shanghai Militia. It was probably the most active anti-communist militia group in the world, and they averaged one killing a week in their raids. Uh, and they were very strong. They were going against the, the kind of the early versions of the drug cartels, the, the unions, the thugs. They were very effective. And he developed at that point the idea that there's various forms of knife fighting, and kind of the traditional one in the U.S. was the Jim Bowie style, which you used a blade as a slashing weapon, where Fairburn said, no, it's far more effective as, as a poignard, as a dagger, and you should use it as a surgeon to strike at the, uh, at the, the body's vulnerable points. And he wrote a famous book before the U.S. went into the war called Get Tough. So as Fairburn joined the British Special Operations Executive, when we started training our soldiers, they lent him to us, and he became the instructor for hand-to-hand -hand combat as well as knife fighting. And we made our own version of the Fairburn knife where we went to a company called Landers Ferry and Clark to develop the blade. It was an exact copy of the British knife, except we used a knurled handle, so regardless if your hand was sweaty, it wouldn't slip. The funniest thing people often remember was they needed to develop a scabbard for it. And at this time, it was very hard to find custom machine work in the U.S. because of the war effort was consuming all of our, of our available uh, resources. But they went to the Echo Kitchen Equipment Company in Connecticut, and they found that if they took the popular pancake spatula, the mold for that would fit perfectly with a leather, leather scabbard attached. And in the pancake, the flat part of the flapper, they put four holes so you could align it on your belt right. in different positions. And so you ended up with the pancake flapper knife, and it was issued to OSS officers and it became one of the most distinctive fighting weapons in the war. So let me move ahead into the Cold War. And Bob, I want to ask you this question because your predecessor, the, the Office of Technical Services, wasn't always called that. It used to be the TSD, the Technical Services Division. And before you got there, uh, they, let's, let's use the word, they, 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 they did some shenanigans. Um, and some of the shenanigans took place up the street at Georgetown University in the Georgetown University Hospital with a program run by a man named Sidney Gottlieb called MK Ultra. Can talk a little bit about this this predates you. You're you're not that you're much younger than being around at that time. But when you uh, went into CIA and then later took over OTS, what was the legacy of MK Ultra? Was that something they pointed back to and said, "Do anything you want, but don't put us in a position to be that again?" MK Ultra. if you Google it, I believe you will get somewhere in the order of one to two million hits. Uh, MKUltra was a, a program developed uh, under the direction of Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, who was a young chemist in the technical service staff of the CIA in 1953. In April of 1953, Alan Dulles recently appointed uh, director of the CIA, made a speech 
called Brain Warfare, a speech to his Yale Alum- Alumni Association. And in that speech, he said, uh, we, the United States, uh, need to be able to fight on the uh, front of uh, against uh, brainwashing or against the use of the of new drugs and new pharmaceuticals that are uh, now becoming uh, available worldwide. LSD being one of them. A, a project called MK Ultra was assigned to the technical service staff. Dr. Gottlieb was in charge of that project, and it was designed to conduct experiments to determine how to protect uh, American soldiers primarily from brainwashing on one hand or on the other hand uh, were there such things as truth-inducing drugs. Uh, so so that, that project got underway in the summer uh, of uh, 1953 and it ran for 10 years. And uh, during, the, during the time that it ran it uh, did uh, conducted a variety of of experiments, drug-based experiments. Some of them with un, unwitting people. The protocols and the demands of the time were substantially different, substantially more lenient. Uh, protocols uh, really didn't exist uh, as much in in human testing, and uh, th- so so this this program. Uh, involved a number of universities and hospitals, and a, a facility was constructed at Georgetown University uh, to to support that program, or partially partially funded by that program. Yeah. So, if any students know of the Gorman Building at Georgetown, that was built purpose built for research for MK Ultra. It, it was funded by uh, the, by the MK Ultra. Yeah. Yes. And among the projects uh, done in there. Uh, would uh, would have been some MK Ultra work. That's correct. So a little closer to us, actually very close, 14th and Pennsylvania Avenue is a restaurant called the Occidental Grill, and this has several things that happened to it. But in uh, October of 1962, there was a very fortunate meeting at the Occident- Occidental Grill uh, for all of us who continued to like living on this planet. Uh, Still today, this is used as little places for back channels and other things. But talk a little bit about what happened on on that that day in nineteen in October nineteen sixty two in a meeting between an American and a Russian. Well, as you mentioned, back channel informal communications are very important between governments, and we were in a position that there was a point of conflict. We had discovered that there were missile sites in Cuba that thanks to a spy by the name of Oleg Penkovsky who worked for the CIA and the British had given us the an image showing the shape of the, the roads kind of a Star of David configuration for the SAM missiles in Cuba we had discovered this our new president was put in a position and he essentially declaring a blockade the, the two countries almost went to war it was diffused you could give credit to this back channel communication sitting there and coming up with a way that would allow both countries to somewhat save face and kind of a studied back down kind of the most interesting point is from Oleg Pinkovsky who had by the way links to the Washington area and we mentioned him in the book 
we had learned that the Soviet Union was not prepared to go to war. Now that point has largely been overlooked by historians. So what was ultimately agreed is that the missiles would be dismantled and taken out of Cuba, we would stand down, the brockade would be lifted. And you can give credit to those clandestine communications that took took place at the restaurant. Well, who was the Russian that was there? The Russian was the, 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 the ambassador. Well, the... the Fulman. Uh, uh, Alexander Fulman. Uh, he was a KGB officer. His real name was not Fulman. Yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's Fexikov. It's, yeah. It's, I yeah. So I want to ask you about where we're sitting right now because the International Spy Museum, our building until next year, and I tell this to people on tours and it's fascinating, had some really interesting history in back in the 1930s. Where, where are we sitting right now? We are in what was once the headquarters for, I believe, the fourth department of the Communist Party USA. And uh, one of the great regrets I have is a story I heard too late that as we were remodeling these buildings because we had to maintain the the historical facade of the facility, the workers, as they were in this area, tore out a, a, a shell wall and found a brick wall behind it with a huge painted hammer and sickle. And to this day I regret we didn't find a way to preserve that. We did ultimately keep the doorway to the office, but at the same time, the Communist Party USA under Louis Boudin's was deeply connected with Russian intelligence operation. It was basically just a shadow front for the Comintern, the Communist International, and they believed they were going to be able to foment a revolution in the United States that paralleled what happened in, in the Soviet Union. And they had expectations uh, you know, for decades thereafter. Of course, they were somewhat re- unrealistic. Right. Let me, let me just throw out one last little uh, promo here for this book. Uh, near the end of the book, you actually have a list of all of the U.S. intelligence officers who are buried in Arlington in the cemetery. Because a lot of people go to Arlington Cemetery when they visit uh, the United States and, and, or Washington, D.C. And one of the great resources of this is actually all the people who worked in an American intelligence who have their final resting place there in Arlington. Have you done a tour of Arlington grave sites to kind of locate where they are? Um, you know, some of them are, are huge. I mean, former directors, people like Francis Gary Powers Sr. Uh, you know, these are uh, household names in the intelligence world. Uh, Vince, just a, a bit of an amendment to that. This is a selective list of intelligence officers that are buried at Arlington. I, th- I think we have about 20 or, or 25 uh, listed, uh, actually including one spy. Who whose story is told in the book, and I might leave that just as a little yeah. uh, hook for uh, people to find out who who that would be. Uh, and uh, the answer is yes. Uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago, I took a little group and we did a spy walk around some of the sites in in Arlington. Uh, Walter Fortsheimer was uh, was one we stopped at. Uh, perhaps most poignant for me was a stopping at the gravesite of Johnny Spann, who was the first CIA officer killed 
in Afghanistan no, ab- after after nine eleven killed in Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, yeah, before any military men, it was he, CIA. He, he, he well he yeah. well may may have yeah. been that, but he was certainly the uh, first uh, CIA officer, uh, uh, a man whose uh, death, an officer whose death, has then led to the creation of the CIA Memorial Fund, uh, which uh, now supports the family, uh, children, uh, widows, family of CIA officers who are killed in the line of duty. Unfortunately, there have been too many of those in the last 15 years. We'd like to thank our new sponsor, Hunt a Killer, and welcome them to the SpyCast family. Remember, you can get 10% off by using the code SPYCAST at huntakiller.com. That's 10% off using the code SPYCAST. Keith Melton and Bob Wallace, the authors of Spy Sites of Washington, D.C., which is now on Washington Post's nonfiction bestseller list. It's not all the way at the top, so let's see if we can't change that. Keith, Bob, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.